Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Guillaume Lejante, who uh, travelled from France to India in the mid-18th century to observe the transit of Venus. Well, actually, I say to observe, but not not really. I, I probably should have said to attempt to observe. Every now and again, we'll have an episode where I sort of keep saying, and it only got worse from there. But um, I'll tell you what. We're going to be hearing that phrase an awful lot today because uh, Lejante was one of the unluckiest blokes in the history of scientific endeavour. As you'll discover, his whole trip, which ended up taking 11 years, went from bad to worse to, uh, I don't know, even even worser, I guess, if you'll believe it. Anyway, he had all sorts of adventures from uh, colonial warfare to uh, dickhead governors to all number of old world diseases, but he never gave up and he stuck at his task for over a bloody decade. Now, before we begin properly, I want to highlight a couple of the papers that I read in preparing this episode. They were part of a column in the Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada called Out of Old Books, written by Helen Sawyer Hogg. And I actually did a bit of research about Helen Sawyer Hogg as well, a very, very interesting figure from the history of astronomy, um, figuring out all sorts of stuff about the Milky Way's size and age and stuff and other things that I'm not smart enough to understand. Um, but she did all, all this as a woman in the 30s, when a ton of universities, for example, Harvard, uh, wouldn't even offer science degrees to women. And not only this, she managed to have a kid. She managed to raise and, uh, have and raise a kid while still working and researching as an astronomer. She used to take little Sally Hogg to the uh, observatory with her where she'd sleep in a basket. Uh, Sally, that is, not Helen herself. She'd be working rather than sleeping in a huge basket. Anyway... Um, I do want to I do want to highlight the work of Helen Sawyer Hogg and and uh, one of the uh, incredible gifts that she had as as a you know member of the av- academia here was uh, she was an ex not only an excellent excellent astronomer but she had the rare gift of writing academic papers that don't immediately put you to sleep so good on her and uh, and thank you Helen Sawyer Hogg for writing a, a series of papers that were actually quite quite interesting to read about uh, Lejeune here anyway let's not go too far ahead of ourselves here let's start from the start and uh, and get stuck into what this bloke was all about we're going back here to 1725. Uh, on the 12th of September, Guillaume Lejeune is born in uh, in Coutances. That's my best. We're going to have a lot of French this episode, and I'll, I'll do my very best with it. Uh, case in point, his full name, which is not uh, just Guillaume Lejeune, it is Guillaume... I'm just going to... Yeah, not even going to try. Guillaume Joseph Hyacinth Jean-Baptiste Le Gentle de la Galassière. So, yeah, not even going to try the French pronunciation. Sorry, mate. Uh, a bit bloody much, I would say. A bit much of a name there to have for, for one bloke. But anyway, um, his family, not particularly wealthy, but they supported this young bloke as, uh, as he gets about ed- educating himself. And he ends up moving to Paris, unsure of what's he, what he wants to do uh, sort of, you know, as he, as he grows up. But he eventually settles on theology, and so he joins the clergy to study. Now, apparently, he didn't much like all the arguing and the navel-gazing that went on while he was uh, while he was studying theology. So instead, this absolute nerd, what he prefers to do is sit outside and look at the stars. And so he quickly switches from theology to astronomy. And this was a good move, as his professor was actually able to introduce him to the 71-year-old Jacques Cassini. Now, Jacques was the son of uh, Giovanni Domenico Cassini, the famous French-Italian astronomer who discovered a bunch of Saturn's moons and, and, and worked on, on 
on, uh, the, I think, the divisions between Saturn's rings and stuff. Uh, and you might have heard uh, of, of the name Cassini because the Cassini space probe uh, that uh, started orbiting Saturn in 2004 before crashing into Saturn's – well, not really crashing, but blowing up in – not even blowing up, disintegrating? I don't know. Being destroyed by Saturn's atmosphere at one point, uh, a couple of, I think, 2014, 2015, um, was named after him. So, Cassini, big bloke in astronomy. His son is, uh, as now at 71 years of age, now being met by uh, Le Gente. Um, so, he's put in touch with Jacques, as I say, and uh, Jacques takes a liking to, uh, to young Le Gente here and, and says, listen here, young fellow, why don't you come and work here at, at my observatory? Now, Lejeune, he jumps at the chance, and so he's away, learning how to use all the instruments and whatever else, having a bloody great time getting stuck into the real business of astronomy. And I'll tell you this, he's a bloody keen bugger. He's a bloody keen bugger. I'll tell you that because he gets a reputation for enthusiasm and hard work that stays with him for his entire life, right? And in 1753, at the relatively young age of 28, he's accepted into the Academy of Sciences, which is quite an honour. Um, and obviously, you know, does good work there, whatever he's doing. But th- but it's seven years later in 1760 that things take a real turn for Lejeune when a global scientific effort starts to swing into action. Because at this point in time, the, the world of science is keen as all hell to figure out the distance between the sun and, and the earth. Now, obviously, obviously, all of us today, we all know that it's... Uh, um, It's uh, just under uh, just under 150 million kilometres, uh, but uh, but back then they hadn't figured that out yet. They weren't 100 percent sure of it. So in 1716, the legendary Edmund Halley had uh, suggested that the transit of Venus would uh, would probably be a good way to figure this out. Now you've probably heard of the transit of Venus. It's when Venus moves directly between the Sun and the Earth, like a tiny little eclipse. Um, and the, the, what will happen is it, it, it goes in a pattern. There'll be a transit, and then eight years later on, there'll be another one. And then the next one will be over 100 years later, and then there'll be another pair eight years apart, then over another century, and then another pair, and so on and so on. Now, the last pair was in 2004 and then 2012. So if you miss them, then, yeah, sorry, mate, you, you're fairly buggered from here on out because the next one won't be until December 2117. But uh, back then, there's one on the horizon coming up. And uh, using whatever sort of sciencey nonsense they had back then, they reckoned that the transit of Venus was the perfect opportunity to figure out the distance between the Sun and the Earth. They're using something called parallax to figure it out. I don't really understand what that's about or how it helps, but basically it means that they have to get, have a bunch of blokes spread out across the face of the Earth to watch the transit from as many angles as possible. So... What this ultimately means is that scientists from all sorts of different countries, they get together and they decide they're going to work together to make all of these observations and whatever else. And as a result, we have what is more or less the first major international scientific collaboration, which I have to say is pretty sweet. Now, our boy, uh, our boy Le Gentil here, he is obviously raring to go. He's a massive keynote, as we've already established, and so he is bloody stoked when he's picked to head off around the world. People are being sent all over the place, Tahiti, St. Petersburg, Baja California, Istanbul, everywhere. Now, Le Gentil, he's, uh, he's told to pack up and head off to Pondicherry in the south, southern part of modern-day India. It's uh, in the southeast, sort of right near, near, down there, near the tip of the, uh, of the continent there. Um, and at this stage, it's a French colonial possession. So Le Gentil, uh, as a Frenchman, he's a good pick to head off there. Everything's organised, and Le Gentil is all packed up, ready to go in early 1760. The transit itself is going to take place on the 6th of June in 1761, so he's giving himself plenty of time to get there, which is obviously necessary, months and months at sea to get over onto the Indian Ocean from uh, from Europe at this stage. And he gets on a ship on the 26th of March in 1760 with over a year to go before the transit, and he sets sail. Now, his journey is not a particularly pleasant one. He doesn't really have his sea legs and doesn't have a great time as a result of this, but uh, you can't blame him. I mean, I once speared my guts up on a ferry going to the Aran Islands in 
in Ireland, and that was about 45 minutes on the, pl- on, the, on, the, on the boat there. So I can't imagine what spending months and months at sea in the 18th century would have been like. Um, despite not loving the trip, he arrives in the Isle de France, right? I'm probably saying that one wrong too, but whatever. Today it's called, the, it's called Mauritius, uh, east of Madagascar, on the 10th of July in 1760, just under a year to go before the transit, you still got plenty of time. Now, we've started off pretty mildly with all the bad luck and misfortune that I promised you at the start of the episode. Here we've got a nasty sea voyage, an upset tummy. Not all that bad. You're sitting there going, well, yeah, come on, let's get to the good stuff. And uh, we are going to start coming to the good stuff right now because here is our first instance of, and it only got worse from there, because after landing on the Isle de France, right, Le Gentil, he realises, or he learns, that France and Britain have gotten back into their shared national pastimes of being at war with one another. Now, this is not good news uh, for Le Gentil because... Uh, now, no French ships will take him anywhere near Pondicherry because of the fighting that's going on in India. On top of not having any way to get to Pondicherry because of, you know, this colonial scrapping, Le Gente engages maximum 18th century mode here by then getting dysentery. So we really are peak 1700s here. He has a truly miserable time trying to figure out his next move. He starts thinking about heading to another island to the east called Rodriguez, where another scientist was uh, was sent to observe the transit, maybe going to help him out. Ultimately, however, he doesn't go off to Rodriguez because of uh, what, what something that happens, which seems at the time like a, a, a stroke of a very good luck, because what happens is this. In February 1761, just a few months before the transit, a French ship turns up on Isle de France and Le Gente learns that it's carrying a message that has to be sent to India. Bloody brilliant. The governor of Isle de France organises a frigate to be sent on towards India and Le Gente gets himself aboard River. So he's back on track. At first, they're making excellent time. They're zipping along, favourable winds, having a great time. However, when they approach the, mon- they approach the monsoonal areas, the winds turn and the ship is blown in basically the opposite direction to where Le Gente wants to go. This is a bloody disaster. So he ends up off the coast of Africa in the Seychelles where he learns that Pondicherry has been captured by the British and so he's basically buggered. On the 30th of May, therefore, the captain uh, of, the, of the frigate that he's on, he gives up his quest and decides to head back, head back to the Isle de France, a journey that will take about a month. And of course, when the res- as a result of this, the transit of Venus, it takes place on the 6th of June. Of June? The 6th of June, I'm getting way too French here. Le Gente is on the heaving, pitching deck of a ship, unable to do anything remotely useful when it comes to cold, hard science. He did his best. He really did. But he couldn't set up his instruments or get any data because, you know, he's on the he's on a, a, the, the, the deck of a ship and it's constantly heaving, moving from side to side like that. So he can't, he, he's absolutely, he can't do anything. Imagine trying to, you know, sit a high school exam on the back of a charging elephant. Poor Dejante really had a very, very bad run here. It's pretty heartbreaking to think that he wasn't actually even all that far away from Pondicherry and could have made it if it weren't for the war. But amazingly, what's quite amazing about this is that while it knocked him about a bit and while obviously he wasn't too happy about how sort of things had ended up there, it only stiffened his resolve in the long run. He was so determined, so eager and so keen to get the data that he was sent off to get that he decides to stick around for the second transit that is going to happen in eight years from here. He goes, no, I'm not going back to France, not going back to France empty-handed. I'm going to stick around here. I'm going to stay here until I get what they sent me to, uh, to uh, you know, to achieve. So he heads back to the Isle de France on this frigate, arriving on the 23rd of June in 1761. He's now got eight years until the next transit, as I said, which will, uh, which will take place on the 3rd or the 4th of June in 1769. And you know our boy doesn't give up easily. He's going to stick around in the Indian Ocean to do as much bloody science as he can before he heads back to India, as I say, in eight years. So off he goes again, sailing around the Indian Ocean, working on astronomy, on geography, natural history, meteorology, all sorts of stuff, right? And things go relatively smoothly 
particularly for him during this time. Although, actually, one thing, uh, he did have a, a nasty old time in Madagascar because uh, there he had some dodgy beef that really threw him over. He wrote about this. Uh, he had what uh, he described as a sort of violent stroke. And, uh, yeah, pretty gross, I know. But uh, if you'll believe it, by way of treatment, he was bled. Like a 14th century plague victim, they actually bloodletting was used on him, right? And luckily he survives this, but uh, he wrote about how he had double vision for the next week or so. So it must have been quite a stroke that he had there. I'm sorry, I'm really reaching for the, for the low-hanging fruit here. Anyway... He's done a bloody good job of things. He's mapped the east coast, of Ma- east coast of Madagascar. He's doing all sorts of research into, you know, the topics I talked about before, uh, astronomy and, uh, and meteorology and all sorts of stuff like that. Throughout this whole time, however, he doesn't forget about the transit that's going to take place in 1769. And so in 1766, with three years left, he starts to make some serious preparations for it. He's not going to be caught with his pants down this time. He'd been thinking about his next move and where he wanted to go next. And after a bit of, uh, you know, thinking calculations, that sort of stuff, he decided that Manila in the modern day Philippines is actually a better place for him to go and and, and take these observations, these measurements than Pondicherry, thanks to its position in relation to Paris. I don't really get it either, but whatever, that's where he's off to. As a result, he secures a berth on a 64-gun Spanish warship, captained by an old Spaniard mate of his that he'd met in Paris way back when, Don Juan de Cassaines. He leaves the Isle de France on the 1st of May, 1766. And I will tell you this, he had had it up to the back teeth with the place and was very ready to leave it here forever. He gets on the ship, he's bloody waving off it in the distance, hoping never to have to come back in his entire life. He was sick of living there after so many years, popping across the Indian Ocean every now and again. And what he's planning to do is to actually go home via Acapulco in Mexico and thereby serve circumnavigate the globe. Nice one. Obviously, you know, take the scenic route home. He's got plenty of time up his sleeve. Anyway, he's off. No dramas off on another long and boring and unpleasant uh, ship's voyage, this time across to Manila. Now, he arrives in the Spanish-controlled Manila on the 10th of August in 1766 after a long voyage from the Isle de France, and he didn't write about it particularly extensively. But uh, from what he did write, he didn't seem to enjoy himself too, uh, too much, which is a bit of a shame. And uh, again, Things get worse for him in Manila as well, because he very nearly went on a trip to the Mariana Islands, uh, thinking that it might even be a, an even better place to set up, uh, set up shop for the transit there. But I'll tell you this, he was bloody glad he didn't, because the ship uh, that he was thinking about taking to get over to the Mariana Islands, it actually got, it actually sunk, it got wrecked and it sunk. Uh, now, only three or four people died, but they lost the ship and they lost everything in it, meaning that if, if he'd been on it, all of his instruments and gear and journals and all that sort of stuff would have been lost forever, you know, consigned to the briny deeps, which would have been an absolute disaster. So very, very lucky, lucky therefore, that he decided not to get on the ship after all. Now, that was a bit of a close shave, but it got much, much worse when he tried to get in touch with the governor of, uh, of Manila and, uh, you know, and sort of figure out his, his, his plan for the coming years to get ready, because the governor was a, a bit of a dickhead. And uh, I don't know, I couldn't, I couldn't find out his name, but he didn't like the French at all. He had a massive chip on his shoulder when it came to the French. And as a result, he made life pretty hard for poor old Le Gentil here. Um, so now, reckoning that he might have had, he might you know be having a bit of trouble, you know, he, he was a clever bloke, Le Gentil, and he realised that this might have been an issue that was going to sort of crop up as he headed over to a Spanish-controlled part of the world. He actually had sent off for a letter of recommendation from the court of Spain before he left the Isle de France. Now, it took just over a year for it to arrive in Manila, which is pretty quick in those times. But when Lejante showed it to the governor, the governor said it was a fake because it had arrived so fast. As I say, this bloke had a massive chip on his shoulder, and not just with Lejante and the French. He loved messing with Lejante and all of his affairs, but he also behaved like an idiot with everyone else. He was a he was basically a cruel tyrant. He was not a very nice fellow at all. Treated Manila like his own sort of personal fiefdom, and uh, actually got arrested and chucked in prison two years after all of this nonsense with Lejante happened. Anyway, Lejante himself, he's had just about enough. He likes Manila. 
Gallery. He stays there for quite a while, and he reckons that it's just as beautiful as anything and has perfect weather conditions to view the transit, but he just doesn't think it's going to be a good idea to stick around you know, when he actually wants to get down to the cold hard business of science because this governor, again, he's got, he's got it in for him and he's probably going to stand in his way. This governor, rubbish behaviour, enough for Le Gentil to actually decide not to risk his mission, and so he goes, bugger this, I'm off to Pondicherry after all. So after hanging out in Manila for about a year and a half, he's off again. He gets a lift with a Portuguese ship heading to Madras, or uh, uh, Chennai as it's known these days, not too far from Pondicherry. He packs up all his gear and he sets off, and uh, once again... Poor old Lejeune he just cannot catch a break. This ship has been prepared uh, very, very poorly. And so after three days of sailing with all sorts of issues, they're actually forced to turn back to Manila. This is a, a disaster. I mean, obviously, he's got plenty of time off his sleeve, but he's hating it aboard this uh, this Portuguese ship with all these idiots that are trying to run the show there. Now, luckily, they fix all the problems that they were having, and they head off again on the 5th of February, 1768. Now, but this was just the start of it when it comes to the problems on this voyage. The first issue they have is when they're trying to sail through a narrow strait. The way, sh- the way ships would navigate difficult stuff like this was actually with a pilot who was in charge of all the navigation stuff, and, and even the captain had to defer to the pilot in situations like this. Captains weren't traditionally, uh, well, you know, at this time anyway, they weren't traditionally trained in, in all of the fine arts of navigating, and, and obviously they relied on people like the pilots to, uh, to make executive decisions in this case, and kind of had to defer to them, as I say, uh, in situations where the ship was going to potentially be in danger if the pilot couldn't do their job properly. Anyway, very touch and go. Steering a big uh, hulking ship isn't easy, uh, but in this situation, the pilot is making it as hard as possible here for everyone involved. He's not doing a very good job, and at one point, the captain actually reckons the pilot is going to bottle it. And so he yells out, oh, mate, hang on a bit here because this isn't right. Watch where you're going. And the pilot says, captain, mate, honestly, with, re- with all due respect, stick it right up your ass. I'm the pilot here. I know what I'm bloody doing, all right? So, you know, just leave, go. Now, the captain comes back by saying, mate, I don't bloody care if you're the king of the moon. It's my ship and it's, you're going to do what I say or you, you're going to wreck it. So pull your head in and, and, and just get on with it properly. Now, the pilot at this, he cracks the sads. He's a huge go at the captain at this point. And then after this, get this, he chucks all his toys out the pram and he goes down to his cabin to sulk. Not only is that pretty bloody childish behavior from this idiot pilot, it's also super dangerous. The ship isn't being steered anymore. Imagine this. Imagine Imagine you're off on holiday, your dad's driving down the highway and you go, oh, dad, you know, maybe just chop into the left, left-hand left lane, the lane there, I reckon. He goes, oh, well, no, I'm going to go and bloody stick my head up like this, right? So he's off crying and having a, having a bloody big sook. Now, Lejante, obviously a man of action, all-around ripper bloke. He rushes straight down to the pilot's cabin to come get him out, but this idiot is carrying on like a pork shop and he won't come out. The ship, meanwhile, is still going through this strait and it's still at risk of crashing. The wind is, you know, having its way with the ship and Lejante is having absolutely none of this. He's got all of his gear on the ship. He's not leaving any of it to chance. So he says, nah, bugger this, bugger this for a joke. Do you know what he does? Remember, He's absolute nerd burger. He's a stargazing scientist. He's not a sailor or anything, but never mind that because Lejante, he takes over and he starts to pilot the ship himself. He manages to keep the ship going without damaging it or anything until some other people on the ship can finally persuade the uh, this dickhead pilot to remove his head from his own ass and, and get on with the job. And the ship, you know, ultimately gets through the strait safely. But Lejeune leaping into action there, you you got to take your hat off to him. Anyway, the second issue, if you'll if you'll believe it, on the same on the on, you know, on the same voyage with these Portuguese blokes, again involves this idiot pilot. Where they're sailing, they're sailing near Penang in modern day Malaysia, and the pilot and a couple of his mates they decide they want to go and cut about on an island that they've spotted. They actually invite Lejeune to come and hang out, but he says no way, Jose, because uh, he doesn't want to leave all of his gear on the ship uh, without him. He, he he said he has a strict policy 
policy of, of not getting off the ship unless they're actually in port somewhere proper. And uh, this proves to be a very, very wise decision because uh, as these three blokes were ashore, a great big rainstorm whips itself up, right? And these three idiots, they're stuck on this island with no shelter and they can't get back to the ship with the storm blowing a bloody gale around them. They realise, however, that they're holding the ship up and they have to get back into the little boat, you know, quick smart to try to row out to this massive, uh, through this massive storm, these heaving waves, right? And they're nearly actually lost at sea as they keep getting belted about by the weather. It takes hours and hours and hours for them to finally make it back onto the ship in one piece and get dragged aboard with the ropes. Honestly, mate, this Portuguese ship was such a total joke that it's amazing that it managed to sail at all. Le Gentil later wrote a properly scathing account of all this in a letter to a mate of his after all this happened. Uh, check out what he said and, and just sort of remember, these are the words of a highly educated scientist in the 18th century. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not really going to be an expletive laden Facebook rant, but it is more or less the equivalent of this uh, from, you know, from hundreds of years ago. He said, <clears throat> I have never heard of a European vessel in which there was so little discipline that the first two pilots could thus abandon their ship for a pleasure jaunt. Only the captain remained, and he was as little in condition to conduct his vessel as I am to lead an army. And for pilots, two old automatons to whom I would not have entrusted the conduct of a launch. So in other words, these Portuguese jokers are absolutely taking the piss, buggering off to muck about, the captain couldn't find his ass with both hands, and both the pilots are complete turkeys. Loosely, roughly translated. Anyway. Despite sailing with these idiots, he actually made pretty good time. And finally, at long, long last, he arrives in Pondicherry on the 27th of March, 1768, eight years and one day after leaving France, he finally gets there. So... Le Gentil goes ashore at 9 o'clock in the morning on the 27th of March, 1768, taking with him all of his instruments, all of his gear, and he doesn't muck around at all. He goes straight to the governor, and unlike the nasty piece of work back in Manila, the governor here in Pondicherry is a rock-solid bloke and welcomes Le Gentil with open arms. He goes out to this big old country house, ends up whining and dining with his governorship, and they both hit the grog and get a, bit, a fair bit of tucker into them and have a great time overall. The governor, who seems to have taken a bit of a liking to her mate Le Gentil, he promises him that he'll send out his chief engineer with Le Gentil to find the perfect spot for him to make his observations. Things are finally starting to turn around for Le Gentil here. He's where he's supposed to be in Pondicherry with over a year to go before the transit, and now he's got the wind at his back with getting stuff set up. Sure enough, the governor is as good as his word, and in the next few weeks he set up shop in the ruins of an old citadel, or you know, big, big, huge sort of fort-looking thing. Now, that's already pretty sick, but the ruins, uh, they're actually in decent shape, and he's able to set up all of his gear on one of the corner pavilions on top of this huge thick wall, right? So nice flat area with sort of elevated. He's got a good view of the eastern horizon, which is where the transit's going to take place early in the morning on the uh, on the 4th of June next year. And uh, despite being ruined, actually, the Citadel is it, it's still used by the French authorities uh, there for, you know, stuff like storage and the like. And at one point, I like this, at one point, they haul in 60,000 weight of gunpowder. And guess where they store it? Of course, Le Gente has set up right, he's shop right above one of the old powder magazines. So while he's bloody mucking about at night looking at Uranus or whatever, he's got enough power to bloody ride a rocket ship out all the way out there right under his ass. Anyway, this didn't seem to bother him too much uh, as he's just, he's happy to have, uh, you know, he's happy to have got there and, and to be uh, doing all his nerdy astronomy stuff and having a river time getting ready for this transit. Now, by the time that June comes around, remember the, the, the transit will take place in June 1769 or 3rd or the 4th of June. 
a year or so away. He's got everything uh, well and truly ready and, and starts to work on other stuff to pass the time. Now, when I say, sorry, I'll just clear something up. When I say the third or the fourth, uh, it, it's not that they didn't know which day. They didn't have to sit there, you know, hoping they were going to, they knew exactly what was going to take place. About the time zones. In some parts of the world, it was going to be the third. In some parts, it's going to be the fourth. In our case, Lejante, it's going to be early in the morning on the 4th of June, right right at sunrise, basically, he's going he's to be able to see it there. Now, he's actually got everything ready over a year or just about a year before the transit is going to take place. He's got everything ready in June 1768. He's got 12 months clear to get some other science done as well. Uh, and so what he does, right, well, after having set everything up in his observatory, he works in all sorts of other stuff. He keeps himself characteristically busy with all sorts of business, right? He fixes with the greatest possible accuracy that he could the exact latitude and longitude of Pondicherry, which will help him processing the data that he gets when the transit finally happens. He does research on the monsoon season and the optimal shipping routes around the Indian Ocean, and uh, he actually gets in touch with a bunch of uh, local Brahmin people uh, with their sort of uh, their calculations on uh, on figuring out when figuring out when eclipses are going to happen. And he does a lot of very important pioneering work, uh, incorporating their uh, mathematical technology into into the Western uh, you know traditions and, and the Western things that they knew what was going on there. Anyway, all of this keeps him occupied for the year. And as June 1769 approaches, he is getting pretty bloody excited. He wrote extensively about how good the conditions were, excellent astronomical conditions that he had in Pondicherry, nice clear skies, good angle to view the sunrise from his observatory on there, there on the Citadel. And he double and triple checked everything as the transit grew, grew closer to make sure he was going to knock it out of the park. And by the time we get to June, we're 100% ready for this transit to take place and be observed here by our mate Lejante. He goes to bed on the 3rd of June. Remember, the transit happening on the 4th local time. He is exci- as excited as all hell to get it done tomorrow. But, of course, you already know that it's going to stuff up beyond belief. Paul Lejante, he doesn't have a chance. After years of preparation, misfortune, disease, mistreatment, and everything else he's been through, there's still plenty more heartbreak left for our poor old mate here. What happens is this. He wakes up early to be ready to observe the transit low in the eastern sky. Everything is set up, everything is in readiness, and he is going to do some science and get it done. But, oh bloody no, look at this. The sky is completely covered in clouds. A hugely unseasonal squall had blown in and rendered the sky overcast, blocking out you know, what was almost always clear skies, blocking out the sun completely. Lejante is gutted. He is absolutely devastated, but he doesn't give up just yet. Of course he doesn't. The wind is still blowing a gale and there's a chance that the clouds will be, you know, broken up and blown out of the way before the transit ends. He's standing there, he's waiting and waiting. The winds die down, however, and the clouds settle in for the long haul. And unfortunately for Lejante, after years of waiting, the transit takes place hidden by this veil of clouds, and he doesn't get to see a single minute of it. The clouds finally start to break up just a few minutes before 7 o'clock, exactly when Venus was to move out of the face of the sun. Lejante, he's desperately peering through his telescope, hoping beyond hope to catch even a glimpse of Venus before it disappears. But no, the cloud cover is still too thick. The clouds, they continue to break up, and by 9 o'clock, the skies are clear again. And just by two or three hours, two or three hours earlier, Lejante would have got what he needed, but as it was, he didn't get any information, any data, any results or, or, or observations whatsoever. I can't imagine how Lorgente must have felt after that. And luckily, I actually don't have to because he wrote about it afterwards. So here's what he had to say. <clears throat> 
I had gone more than 10,000 leagues. It seemed that I had crossed such a great expanse of seas, exiling myself from my native land, only to be spectator of a fatal cloud which came to place itself before the sun at the precise moment of my observation to carry off from me the fruits of my pains and my fatigues. The poor bastard. He went on to talk about what happened next after this. I was unable to recover from my astonishment. I had difficulty in realising that the transit of Venus was finally over. At length, I was more than two weeks in a singular dejection and almost did not have the courage to take up my pen and continue my journal. Several times it fell from my hands when the moment came to report to France the fate of my operations. And what makes it all the worse is just how bloody rare it was for Pondicherry to have weather conditions like this. The winds blowing in like they did, all you know, bring all this cloud cover was was highly, highly unusual. And just to turn the knife a little more, Le Gentil later found out that in Manila, where he decided to leave to come to Pondicherry because of the governor, the conditions were absolutely perfect for viewing the transit, clear skies and no clouds. At this stage, you're probably thinking, yeah, well, how much worse can it get for poor Le Gentil? That's it, right? That must be it. We've surely seen the worst eight years wasted on a wild goose chase. There's nothing left for him to lose. Oh, sweet, innocent listener, how little you know. Because after this disaster, a little after this disaster of the second transit, Le Gentil had made arrangements to head back to France. He's had enough of all this nonsense in the Indian Ocean. He wants to get back to his native home, eat some snails, mouldy cheese, and, and just live out his life in peace. So, He's organised to head back to on a ship in October, going back to the Isle de France to collect some of the stuff that he'd left there. But in September, he contracted a tropical fever and was bedridden for weeks and weeks. So after having made this organ, this you know, this arrangement to, to head back on this ship to uh, back back home via the Isle de France to pick up his stuff, he misses the trip because he's bedridden. And uh, you know, no worries, no worries. He missed the ship. Hard luck. Sure, he can organise another one. Nope. He fell ill again with the same fever in December, but this time he got another bout of dysentery to go along with it just for good measure. So at this stage, poor old Lejeunte, he feels like fate is uh, conspiring to keep him in India forever. And so he says, bugger this, I'm going home. I don't care how bloody crook I am. I'm getting on a ship. Still sick as all hell, he gets on a ship on the 1st of March in 1770, which is again sailing back home to Paris or back to France at least by, by the Isle de France. Now, sailing back then was never a hugely pleasant experience, and uh, sailing while sick as a dog definitely wouldn't have made it much better. Uh, you won't be surprised to learn, therefore, that uh, when Le Gentil arrived in Ile de France, he's half bloody dead and uh, completely unable to go on. Despite all those years ago deciding he never wanted to have to stay in Ile de France again, he is forced to. He's simply not well enough to continue going home. So now he's back in his old haunt, bloody hating. He has to chill out there and try to get better. But at least, you know, he's got some of his old mates there. He hangs out with them and catches up. So it's, it's, it's not so bad, but still, he's not loving life. He's still keen as all hell to get home. And so he starts making more arrangements about halfway through 1770 after having, you know, got his health back, after getting back on his, on his feet here. Now, in July, a ship arrives that's planning to head back to France and Le Gentil organises a berth aboard it with all of his stuff. Bloody brilliant. Get it done. But the ship, of course... It just doesn't leave Isle de France. For months and months, it just sits in the harbour and it stays there until the end of November. He finally leaves the Isle de France on the 19th of November, 1770, over a year after he tried to leave Pondicherry for the first time. But he's finally back on track, finally heading Francewoods again. But you know what's coming next, don't you? Because only a couple of weeks later, on the 3rd of December, the ship, as it's on route back to France, it is hit by a massive hurricane. Of course it is. 
This hurricane absolutely ruined the ship. It broke the rudder, it tore the sails, it ripped over two masts and filled the ship full of holes. Now, luckily, it didn't sink, but still, it took the crew over a week to patch everything up. And even then, they couldn't continue that to limp all the way back to Isle de France for proper repairs. So now, in 1771, the 1st of January, New Year's Day, 1771, he's back in the Isle de France, and you'd think he's have to, oh, mate, he would be as cross as a frog in a sock at this point. He can't believe his bad luck back in bloody Isle de France. He can't get away. For some reason, too, after this, he has huge trouble finding another ship to take him home. All the French ships actually, re- they refuse him entry. They're saying they were full with this special cargo, quote-unquote, that meant that he couldn't come aboard. So it wasn't until March, when a Spanish warship turns up, that he finally finds a berth. Now, the Spanish captain is a bloke named John, Don, jo- Don Joseph, probably not that, Don Josef. I'm going to go with Don Joseph. Don Joseph of Cordova seemed thrilled to have Le Gentil uh, on board. And so now finally, he's back up and about once again. He's on his way back to France with this bloke, John Do- Don Joseph, who, who turns out is an absolute red hot pistol. He's a fantastic fellow, as you'll find out. They leave Isle de France on the 30th of March with Le Gentil looking back at the island and once again, hoping hoping beyond hope that it's the last time he ever has to clap eyes on it. Now, it's very rough going, very, very rough going, as you would expect. Rounding the Cape of Good Hope involves sailing through huge storms and horrible conditions, but old mate Don Joseph was apparently absolute gun of a captain and got him round into the Atlantic, no worries, by the 11th of May. We're getting closer and closer to home. Now, on the other side of the Cape, Le Gentil's ship actually ran into the French ships that had refused to take him on. They hadn't been going as quick as, uh, as, as old mate Don Joseph here. Now, you know, obviously they're bloody mongrels for not letting Le Gentil on, but they have the cheek, right, to ask Don Joseph and his warship to escort them back towards Europe because of these simmering political tensions that are happening back on the European continent. They're, I mean, how bloody cheeky can you get? Bloody brass neck on these French blokes, I'll tell you what. But Don Joseph? Absolute rock star. And so he says, cheers, boys. No worries at all. Come along. Now, one of the French captains, interestingly, actually comes and eats some crow, comes to a Le Gentil and says, listen, mate, sorry about all that stuff back in Isle de France. Do you want to pop over and be on our ship now? You know, we're sorry but that it didn't sort of work out back then. But if you want to come be with us, that's all right. Uh, now, Le Gentil, you know, he thinks about this. He mulls it over and, and gives a very diplomatic response back to the French captain, tell him to stick it right up his bum. Because, you know, Don Joseph, Open, welcome me with open arms, friendly bloke, lovely bloke, and then these French bastards just expecting him to turn tail, come back on their ship? No, no way, no, no way, not well, not no way, Jose. What is it? No way, Francois, not happening, my friend. Anyway, one more tiny little interesting thing happened uh, on the way back to Europe. At one point, uh, they actually run into a British ship. Right, they're on the Spanish. There's little convoy, Spanish ship, couple of French ships, and they they run into a British ship. Now, Don Joseph, he invited, to put it politely, he invited the British captain on board. A request that you know you can't really refuse when it comes from the captain of a, a massive Spanish warship with all these guns pointing at you. Um, so the British captain, he comes over, he rows over, he comes aboard, and uh, Don Joseph promptly says, listen here, mate, bit of bad news for you. Well, I've heard that uh, Spain, and, Spain and Britain are actually at war, so uh, going to have to take you prisoner. Sorry about that, old son. Now, the British, the British captain, he goes, mate, what are you talking about? We're not at war. Have you got rocks in your head, big fella? Because we're not at war at all. What are you going on about? Now, Don Joseph says, no, mate, seriously, we are. Didn't you know? Some bloke told me in, in the last port that I was, that I was in that, uh, yeah, Spain and, uh, and, and Britain, they're, they're, they're going at it, chucking punches around. British bloke comes back and says, nah, mate, seriously, look, it, it, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it did seem like it was going to go that way for a while, eh? But uh, nah, seriously, mate, it, it, it's all good now. And John Joseph goes, no, nah, nah, you, are, you are full of it. You are full of it, big fella. Not listening to a word you're saying. 
Now, the British captain, he's getting a bit cross at this stage. He says, now, listen here, you Spanish dickhead. I've got a newspaper in my cabin proving that everything's fine between Britain and Spain. Tell my boys to bring it over. So sure enough, they go and fetch the newspaper, and it says that war had looked likely, but it was actually ultimately averted. So it's a big old oops from Don Joseph there. But what does this bloke do, however? He absolutely cops it. He cops it right on the chin. He says to the British captain, oh, yeah, look. Sorry, old mate. How about you stick around for some taco, get uh, get some booze flowing, we'll have a good time. So Don Joseph there, by way of apology, he gets out the wine, he gets out the bloody macaroons, and they sit around having a couple of jars and and, and, and catching up a bit before Don Joseph sends the British uh, on their way. And the British are so thankful to have been to have you know been let off like this that they give him by way of a gift a big sack of potatoes. Which, I mean, in terms of like all time greatest gifts, not really up there, but you know. Beggars can't be, or not even beggars, really. I guess what is it? Don't look at a gift horse. Don't look at gift sack of potatoes in the mouth. In any case, whatever they have, it. they have some chips. They're loving it. But after a very, very long journey, over just over four months, it is Le Gentil, He finally arrives back in Europe in Cadiz. Finally, safe and sound, back on European soil in one piece. He's done it. Absolute legend. Get around him. All he needs to do now is get back to France. Now, he waits about a month in Cadiz because it's bloody hot and he doesn't want to have to travel in the heat. But finally, at long, long last, he makes the trip back to France overland this time. He's, he's had enough of ships, unsurprisingly. And at nine o'clock in the morning on the 8th of October, 1771, he crosses the top of the Pyrenees and finally sets foot back in his native land after only 11 years, six months and 13 days of being away. You think that was it? No, mate, of course it's not. Of course it's not. There's still plenty more rubbish for Le Gentil to have to deal with here. Check this out. It only gets worse. I mean, from our perspective, it only gets better. Check this out. You're not going to believe this. Le Gentil had been gone for so bloody long that his heirs had started spreading rumours about him dying. So get this. Le Gentil gets back to France only to find that people are eagerly dividing up his estate, plundering it with both hands amongst themselves and, you know, going for, going hammer and tongs at, at, at everything that he's left behind. Not only that, he also finds out that he'd been replaced at the Academy of Sciences, the very organisation that sent him away in the, first, in the first place. They've replaced him. And even worse than all this, as far as Le Gentil is concerned, he's lost his luggage. All these luggage, all the gear that he was trying to bring back by by ship, it gets lost. He doesn't know where it is. After years of collecting cases and cases of, of, of artifacts, specimens and samples for the study of natural history, they're all lost somewhere at sea and he never saw them again. So an absolute disaster after a decade of ridiculous hardship and, and tenacious determin- determination that only led him to bitter disappointment, he finally gets back to France only to realise that it's all gone to hell there as well. Now, he does manage to salvage his estate, luckily, aided by the rather persuasive argument of, I'm not dead, you absolute raving lunatic, have a bloody look at me, will you? And uh, he also manages to reclaim his spot at the Academy with arguments that broadly ran along very similar lines. But unfortunately, the bloke who had been left uh, behind to manage his affairs back home had bottled it so badly that poor old Le Gentil lost a huge amount of money doing all this, uh, and which he just had to take on the chin. He was involved in length, lengthy court cases and all that sort of stuff, which, again, just all that sort of stuff came out of his pocket, this poor bloke. So he's, he's having a pretty rough time of it when he gets back to France. But, 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 I'm very, very happy to conclude this story by saying that after all of this, he ends up getting married, having, having a little daughter, and most deservingly, he lived happily ever 
after. Guillaume Le Gentil, he died on the 22nd of October 1792 after a peaceful and very happy 21 years back in his native France. Years he definitely deserved after his decade of hardship on the other side of the world, doing his utmost in the face of the most horrific bad luck to try to observe the transit of Venus, not once but twice, both times unsuccessfully. And in the words of Helen Sawyer Hogg in her excellent series on Le Gentil, in his attempts to observe the transit of Venus, he has set a record for astronomical persistence, which it would be hard to equal. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Guillaume Le Gentil. And I'm very pleased indeed that he did end up with a, a well-deserved happy ending there because, of course, as we've talked about on this podcast many times, happy endings don't come to all of the people who deserve them. Anyway, that's that for this week. Thanks for hanging out with me this week. It's been fantastic to uh, to, to bring another episode of half Ass History. Special thank you, of course, goes out to all of the, uh, the patrons, all of the people who are chucking me money on Patreon. If you want to join their exalted ranks, you can jump over to halfassedhistory.net and follow the links to do that. That's also a good way to get in touch with me. I've got plenty of emails recently and I do thank each and every one of you for uh, for reaching out to me with uh, kind words and ideas for uh, for future podcast uh, topics. I've got a favour to ask you. Now, I know, you know, sorry, I don't want to, I don't want to be sort of too demanding or entitled here, but uh, I have to say, look, I've been absolutely, I've been shocked in a very, very positive way. I've been baffled, really, very humbled by uh, by the growth of the listenership of this podcast. I get weekly emails from people saying they've enjoyed it and I thank you so very much for that. But uh, I'm getting to a point where I'm, I'm I'm sort of thinking about trying to take this podcast maybe the next level, and and, and for that I you know, I really would appreciate if, if if anyone who's listened to this podcast would start just having a chat about it to their friends or, or I mean even your enemies it doesn't matter I mean if you want to want to punish your enemies with more boring history chat please by all means. But um, if you if you could do me a favour and and have a chat about it, you know, to, to to your mates, to people you know online, if you go on Twitter, have a chat about it. I'd really really appreciate it because I do want to get this podcast in the ears of as many people as possible. So if you think it's worth doing, I'd really be very grateful to you. Of course, no obligations if you just want to sit in your dot and have a listen to it every week. That's I mean I'm I'm already thankful for that. But uh, if you could get the word out there a little bit more about half hour's history, I'd really really appreciate it. We'll see what we can do. Anyway. Still sending stickers out, by the way, free of charge. All you need to do, get in touch with me, send me an email with your address, and uh, and I'll send those out to you again. Might be a bit of a delay in getting them to you, as it you know does take me a while to sort of get on top of things. But uh, all, I'm happy to say that everyone who has emailed me about stickers, they are on the way. They are on the way. I'm 100% up to date with mailing at the moment. So uh, if you're wanting some as well, then just get in touch again with your email. It'll, it'll cost you nothing. It'll cost you nothing at all. Uh, just, just send me your, your IRL address, and, uh, and, I'll, and I'll ship them to you, through to you. Anyway. That's enough boring nonsense from me. As ever, we are going to close out the show with uh, a, qu- a question posed on Reddit. Astronomical question this time. We've done a lot of chatting about Venus, a lot of talk about the uh, the second planet from the sun there. And uh, this is a very good question posed by uh, Reddit scientist Flying Beetle Kites. Very, very good question about uh, some of the, the, the heavenly bodies here. <clears throat> Flying Beetle Kites wants to know, if Venus is the hottest planet, then why am I so attracted to Uranus? <laughs>